In the midst of all the corona confusion, with restaurants closed and supermarkets crowded, with mask-wearing cart pushers, we thought it timely to do a brief around-the-campfire chat about what we can all agree upon. Most people don't know how to cook. As with most things in life, however, things change. And just as our ancestors saw the need to celebrate life through a meal, with the chaos of the outside world, right now might be a time to rediscover this ancient art. Well, I'm not a crook. I burned everything I've got. Military I did not trade arms for hostages. Hi, welcome to the show. Who's hungry? Well, I just ate, so... Pretty hungry. I had a roast chicken with broccoli for dinner, so I'm doing pretty well. Did you put any salt on it, or was it just that? No, well, I I didn't season it with salt. I seasoned... uh, I typically actually don't season my chicken with salt. I seasoned it with... um, some of this Hungarian chicken seasoning called uh, from Zeged, and I use a bit of that so garlic powder. A lot of paprika in there. I, uh, well, it doesn't have paprika as much paprika as you think directly in that chicken mix, and then I'll put extra paprika on typically um, with a little bit of cumin, a little bit of black pepper, um, sometimes a little bit of onion powder if I'm not doing onions with it. And then I'll grill that in a cast iron pan, put it inside of an oven, let it bake through, take it back out, and um, it's pretty good. And then uh, I'll take the chicken out of the pan with all the grease still in there. I'll throw in my uh, chopped broccoli, let it kind of cook up and simmer a little bit inside of the, the juices, and then voila, you have a nice protein-packed meal. So Yeah, I'm... I'm actually looking at my spice rack right now, and for the most part, I'm pretty happy with it. Occasionally, there's something that I need, you know, some obscure spice that I need. But uh, what you have, I have most. I have paprika, which is essential, uh, ground ginger, cumin. Uh, I have the Mexican-style chili powder, which I actually don't like as much as just a regular chili powder from McCormick. Uh, I have the gar- garlic powder, onion powder, coriander. I use I, I use the, a lot uh, of or the hemp. Well, I I use a lot of paprika whenever. I, well, I use a lot of paprika whenever. Yeah, I I, I, I like paprika. I don't use it in everything. Uh, I do. I have cayenne, of course. Uh, I am looking for a better system though for this. You know, there there has to be because I just have this all on a shelf. And I'm always having to kind of unstack them to access the ones below them. I have allspice now because I was trying to make, I was trying to replicate a, uh, there's this place in uh, this food cart 
in Portland, Oregon, that does this lefse with meatballs and a brown goat cheese gravy with, uh, you know, pickled cabbage and bacon and uh, probably lingonberry in there somewhere. Mm. But it's, it's amazing. If you're ever in Portland, you should check it out. It's called Viking Soul Food. And you shouldn't go to Portland, though. Whatever reason you have to, you know, there's at least this. And I was well, trying to our, replicate The previous it, show's guest was telling us that he uh, he considers it about four times as bad as the last time he was there in terms of uh, not being able to walk safely yeah, home. Yeah, well, you'll just get some strange disease or something, you know. I mean, it's just, it's uh, it's a, it's a best to treat it as the, as the Oregon exclusion zone. But <laughs> the, as for the meatballs... I got them mostly right. You know, it's it's kind of a pain. I, I went all out with this because I normally don't spend, try. You know, I try to budget, but I did get lamb. You know, as combination of lamb, uh, veal, and uh, pork. And you know, you make meatballs as you would meatballs, but you're going to throw in things like allspice. And the meatballs turned out all right, but I cannot. I, I'm terrible at baking anything close to baking, and I could not. I could not get a left stick going. Life for me. The meme about everybody baking now is true. It is impossible to get yeast at any grocery store in like a five mile radius of where I'm, I am. You know, I've, I've managed to continue finding yeast. I have not had much of a problem finding yeast. And there's a, there's a bakery up the street from my, my place. And um, they're selling yeast and flour, any kind of flour you want. Yep. Uh, because they have a very different supply chain. They buy it wholesale and then they cut it themselves, package it themselves, you know, so you can get a five pound bag of flour directly. Wait, from them. they cut it? <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you mean they, like they're they stepping it, it like with the, baby uh, powder? It's like, well, it comes in pure from Iowa. And then, uh, you know, we, we split it in half. We mix in some sawdust. We, uh, we sell it to our guy uh, on the okay. streets. Cut, 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 was, cut was the wrong word. I, I meant. Um, divide like they so the guy there was explaining it to me and he actually had a couple of these 75 pound bags of flour that um they get delivered you know weekly kind of sitting out there and i was talking to him about it and so they basically they take the flour um uh, they cut it or they they divide it into either five or ten pound bags um typically stored in paper and they then will typically sell that um, and that's been a huge part of their increase in business is just maintaining a supply of yeast, flour, different kinds of flour, different kinds of baking products um, to the average consumer. And, and it used to be that he was explaining that they did that before, um, but it was never that big a deal because most people prior to this, I don't think really knew how to bake. Um, I'm still convinced most people don't know how to bake. They just heard that there was a food pandemic and they needed to stock up on flour because at some point someone informed them that flour makes bread. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so effectively, a lot of the flour hoarding I think you see is done by people who have no intention of using it and don't know how to use it. Um, like how but, do you make how do you make bread? You take the well, I mean, the flour, flour is and not get it like wet I don't. And you, you kind of look and at it, it and, in and theory, it looks like and you, in theory. You don't really well, even I, need I, yeast I, I, for. Oh, you don't. Yeah, my wife has been into the like making the starter. 
which if you go to any bakery, they'll they'll often give you a starter for almost nothing, like carve yeah, you off a yeah. chunk of their starter. But there's all kinds of recipes, um, mostly derived from actually old English recipes uh, that are, I mean, Yorkshire batter, which can be utilized for any number of things, um, is fundamentally bread. It's eggy bread. So you can make um, Yorkshire batter with just flour, milk, and eggs. Um, and to my knowledge, there has not been a real problem with getting eggs. I haven't had a problem getting eggs or getting good milk. Um, so if I wanted, if I, you know, didn't, if I didn't want to make my own starter or go through the process of, you know, slowly building up bread to then bake, if I just wanted to make something, I always have a good amount of milk and eggs in my fridge and I could just whip up some Yorkshire batter and use whatever, use it for whatever I want. Um, and it's great for kind of yeah. filling you up in the morning. You can store, um, Yorkshire puddings or popovers or just baked pans of Yorkshire batter or um, Dutch babies, all kinds of things like that in your fridge for a month in a Tupperware or whatever, and um, they stay good. Yeah, it's so I uh, that you really need yeah. like recipes or so the, you yeah, know, yeah. it's like some medieval peasant. It's like, hey, I've got a carb source. I've got some fat source. I'm just going to kind of eh, put it together, heat it up. It'll be fine. There's a there's a great channel on YouTube. Um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, although we'll, I'll I'll figure I'll find it again and throw it in the show notes. Um, but he's gone. Well, there's there's Townsend's, which I think everyone has probably watched at this point. Um, which is the guy that recreates a lot. Oh of- yeah, that's the dude who he showed the um, the. Uh, uh, what was it he was putting in coffee? Jeez, oh, man. Because I saw the buttered, I saw the the 18th century style fried eggs. Yeah, yeah. Like so he, 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 that guy's interesting. He does 17th and 19th century North American uh, cookery and culture stuff. Um, but there's a couple other channels that have done uh, good research into like recreating medieval English meals, depending on your class. And looking at what your like the average peasant would have consumed, and actually, um, you know, the average medieval English peasant um, uh, was not. I think history has made us believe that these people were malnourished and that they were like bereft of good food and that they were all gangly. Um, that's really not accurate. Uh, most medieval peasants ate quite well. Uh, they well, it ate depends on the time of year too. It depends on the time of year, but like so, the example he used is that um, like a medieval peasant on any given night would have a whole loaf of bread, although loaves of bread were, were small, but you'd have a small loaf of bread to yourself. You'd have maybe a fish or two, and you'd have um, something like potted peas with, um, with a jug of ale because you weren't going to drink water typically because uh, the water was no good. So you would uh, you'd have a jug of ale with uh, bread, fish, vegetables, some local herbs, and uh, that was that's a perfectly nutritious, uh, filling meal. Um, if you look into the diet of most peasants and what they ate around Europe throughout the day, especially during harvest season, um, most peasants in different parts of Europe. Um, regardless of cultural background, typically ate something like bread, cheese, and meat. 
just kind of, you know, it's kind of like a standard European thing, cheese on bread and then some kind of meat along with it, some kind of maybe dried pork or something like that, or uh, freshly cut pork even sometimes. Um, so that, you know, that the idea that you need to have like these kind of complex recipes to get really good tasting food or that you like to have filling good food, nutritious food, I think is kind of dumb. And the people that are, you know, going through lockdown by cooking um, all these complex meals and wasting God knows how many resources every day, um, just sort of uh, establishing their own vanity, um, really don't get it. Like you can survive pretty well off a bowl of ground beef with some vegetables like cabbage and onions cooked in and maybe have like an apple or some fruit on the side and that's a good satiating it's basically chili. Yeah. Well, if, if I could sort of do a brief history flex, given our show is usually about that sort of topic, and I, I for, please forgive me, audience, I don't quite have much of the repertoire in terms of the uh, cuisine that my co-hosts do, but uh, I do know uh, from years of basically just being cheap and not not wanting to spend uh, unnecessary amounts of money, that you could obtain just about any of the, as Hans is pointing out, the basics and, and more than the basics at the dollar store. Uh, you can get spices, for example, uh, which used to be incredibly uh, difficult to obtain commodities uh, not that long ago. That entire companies were built around the Dutch East Indies and British East Indies companies were essentially founded on on importation of things that will make my food not be boring um that is now to be had for less than a dollar uh so yeah, I, mean, I don't get the excuse it, that people have to waste a lot of or spend a lot of money to enjoy a good meal well what's fascinating is that in another one of these videos they they looked at like what the average english um nobility would have consumed on a, for a dinner and um it, first of all, one of the things you realize is that the consumption of chicken, for example, is a re in mass quantity is a relatively new thing for most of the world. For the United States, for North America, a little bit different. Americans uh, have actually been eating chickens more frequently and in greater volume for a longer period of time than most Europeans. Um, it used to be um, much less, as you're saying. I've seen the statistics on this, and I, I was going to say I think it used to be beef, but at the same time, I think demand for beef has gone up. That could be just the overall population, but was beef, it beef, beef or was, was it pork that was more common? Because chicken is relatively new. I mean, like the Tyson Chicken Company yeah, has basically waned with grow, seasons. If yeah. you want to grow like millions of chickens, well, the Tyson Chicken need? Company is actually just a front for narcotics trafficking. <laughs> well, I've been in one of their processing facilities. They they were not uh, all coked out those chickens that I looked at, but uh, there could be something else going well, on. Well, it's especially. also it's also industrial slaughter and torture of chickens. But uh, chickens I wanted to talk about baking, though. Really I, dumb. I don't like baking. Don't feel sorry for the chickens. Yeah. Well, I, well, one thing, smart, I get, uh, one thing I want to get one thing I want to get across is that we don't we we eat a lot of chicken now, but um, what this this presentation was trying to demonstrate was that uh, most people in medieval England would have not consumed chicken frequently because chickens were 
very valuable commodity primarily for eggs. Eggs uh, or are eggs are one of the most, especially chicken eggs, are probably one of the most valuable cooking items ever conceived. Um, we would have to invent it if it didn't exist naturally. The amount of things you can do with eggs is incredible. And just the pure protein power of having a couple of eggs, uh, you know, in the beginning of the day, they can basically last you throughout the day relatively well is just is insane. Um, so the idea of eating chicken was was definitely a sign of nobility for someone to go out and slaughter a chicken uh, was like a big deal. Because that basically meant um, you're not going to get any more eggs out of that chicken, or you're not going to be able to have that chicken. It's a rooster fertilize hens to get eggs. One of the, you know you're basically making some huge sacrifice. So you might have that chicken when it's old and or it's refused to lay eggs anymore, or it's not doing its job anymore. Um, but the, what you'll what you'll if see. I What's interesting these days is that now you have the ability to eat chicken, eat veal, eat whatever you want, regardless of the season. You can eat it in July, you can eat it in December, um, regardless. You can use the same recipes in July or December because there's no uh, limits on seasonality for uh, herbs or for spices or for fruits or for vegetables or for anything you would use in the cooking of that chicken or that meat. Um, so we live in this amazing era of, of plenty um, where basically the average person has the capability to eat like uh, English nobility did 600, 700 years ago with relative ease and relatively cheaply. The fact that you can go to Walmart, pick up a roasted chicken, like roasted for you, and it's what, $7.99, $8.99? I mean, I, the quality of that chicken is probably not great, but it's a fucking it's like whole chicken. Like four dollars. <laughs> like they basically okay, give so away those that. rotary chickens. Yeah, I mean, like, it's an that's an insane uh, accomplishment for civilization to basically leapfrog six hundred years, seven hundred years, and say literally everyone for the price of less than ten dollars nationally can go out and get a chicken cooked for them, pre cooked seasoned marinated everything and you all you have to do is pop off the lid and start eating wasn't there some political slogan about a chicken in every pot i don't remember what that's attached to but that just came to mind uh, that was an fdr slogan yeah so you one of the things you see um in the evolution of american cooking uh was that american cooking like you can go back to uh American Cookery, which was the first sort of real popular homegrown cookbook written in the early United States by Amelia Simons, I think. Um, I want to say she wrote it in somewhere in New England. I don't remember where. Um, but one of the one of the things you notice when you start, if you read through it or you take any recipes from it, is that first of all, this cookbook. Uh, had a unique trait in that pretty much anyone, unless you were extremely poor or had, were having a very, very bad time um, and, you know, the seasons permitted, could utilize this cookbook. Rich people could do it. The upper classes could do it. The working classes, the farmers, the, the, the gentry inside the cities, the, you know, everyone 
could have access to this kind of food because it was very standard food. Um, it was the utilization of things that were native to North America. It was basically taking the English cooking traditions and saying, uh, what resources do we have here in America that are plentiful? Well, we have a ton of birds. We have more birds than you could ever do anything with. We have turkeys running around all over the place. We have chickens everywhere. Everyone's got chickens. We have all kinds of pigeon, wild pigeons you can eat in the forest. We have all kind, you know, every kind of bird you could want to eat. We have it here. We have all manner of maize and cereals and and grains that we've started growing and changing, you know, in our own atmosphere, our own environment. Um, they're just totally plentiful because the soil is so good. We have rice down south in, in the southern plantations and we have um, gypsy and we have all this stuff that you can get shipped up for relatively low cost. Like it hey, was basically, hey, basically Hans, yeah. do, do you know what else we also have a lot of? What? Bugs. That's also true. That's what we're supposed to eat now. Well, yeah. <laughs> actually, you know, <laughs> North, you North America. You can find maggots in uh, certain grocery stores, actually. You could buy praying, praying mantises at like Home Depot. It's pretty cool. The, the, the funny thing about um, a lot of these early cookbooks is that, um, or even, not even like these early cookbooks, but if you examine cookbooks from even dead civilizations, like Roman civilization, we know that the Romans had cookbooks because some of them survived. Pieces of some of these cookbooks survived. There is no mention of insect consumption. This is like an archaic society that, that and the, you know, 2,000 years ago, and they didn't even feel the need to eat insects. No, the only time you, know, you talk about English yeah, peasants, yeah. but like in the Roman world, in the Greek world, protein was really scarce. You would, you would have like, like bread and I've, I've got serfs. I've got a hundred serfs or, you know, slaves working for me, and they, they basically eat whatever grain i can get to them and that's basically it but there's no like oh and by the way yeah we supplement that with all the you know fried ants or whatever we can find like there's there's none of that the only time i've ever heard uh insect consumption as a recommended uh, dietary supplement is in survival books so this is i, I mean a lot of people well, think it's a, insect, it's a giant psyop, but nothing else. Insects, you know, it's not your insects, first item you're going to eat. Yeah, insect consumption has a, a long history in cultures that were swiftly defeated upon first contact with Europeans, people that didn't eat bugs. Shout out to my right? dead Mayans. I mean, there, there, there's, a, there's an effervescence of insect-eating cultures that literally got their asses kicked by people that thought insect eating was below them. I don't know what that says. I mean, I think there's something to that, to, to, to notice that if you if your civilization is performing so poorly that eating bugs is like your dietary, one of your dietary staples, you're going to get your ass kicked by, you know, even people that are on the lower class of society who basically eat beef, dairy, and bread all day. That's, you know, that's effectively <laughs> the entire colonial period. All of those uh, English regulars that went around conquering the world, none, those guys weren't eating, uh, you know, a 
the best food every day, but I can guarantee you they did not eat bugs. They had a consistent supply of dairy, bread, meat, and some vegetables. And they were all, you know, six feet tall by the, by the 18th century and had good muscle mass and good lung capacity and could, you know, easily blow through your kind of like, uh, I don't know, antiquated 6,000-year-old military tactics. That's one of the things that uh, people talk about once Americans start fighting wars. It's like, Jesus Christ, these guys are really tall. What's up with that? It's like, well, you know, it's the land of plenty where, you know, everybody's eating tons of protein and avoiding to the maximum extent possible childhood malnutrition. Yeah. I mean, there, there's something uh, very peculiar in those early American cookbooks as well. Almost every single recipe is packed with protein. It is a very, very protein-rich diet. The English diet, the you know the, the the diet of I'm not talking about the wider British diet because the Irish I mean for all I know the Irish were eating bugs if there are bugs in Ireland, but the English themselves uh, actually had a very protein rich diet even their lower classes did even the peasants did, and certainly in the early colonial American period and then early United States everyone ate protein everyone ate meat everyone had a con constant supply of dairy. Everyone had a constant supply of hearty vegetables. I mean, the one thing that was somewhat uh, lacking in, in sustenance was fruit, I guess you could say, to an extent. Although there was, a, for a long time, there was this massive expansion of like the apple market in America that even led to... Um, Those are mostly cider apples. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, the, the, there was a time when we actually started to experiment with you know, uh, growing massive amounts of fruit in this country. So uh, is Johnny Appleseed a myth? No, he's a real guy, but they were all cider apples. So yeah. you could uh, grow, your, grow your apples, you'd take them down, press them for cider, let the cider sit for a while and get lit. Yeah, so you're talking about hard cider. Yeah. Well, Mar- well, no, 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 no. no. This this cider was like two percent alcohol. I mean, there there was a there was a culinary and cultural tradition in this country for a very very long time, well into the late 19th century, I would say, even in in much of old America, the old America, where uh, particularly in New England. Uh, and in the South, where people would almost always have a barrel of cider next to the door. Well, in, in the winter, and, if you take that 2% cider and you let it sit outside until it freezes, you've magically transformed your uh, 2% uh, apple cider into, well, I don't know, the distillation ratio, but probably about 12% uh, Applejack, which is also pretty tasty. And I highly recommend you do that if you happen to have a... Uh, an apple orchard uh, that sells uh, cider, uh, as well as a, a an amenable climate here in the U.S. I mean, the the, the there there was a huge tradition in this country, um, and this is why prohibition was such a cultural shock to many people. But there was a huge tradition in this country for a long time where most people had. Uh, some kind of cider or some kind of very light beer readily available at all times. Now, 
the the difference being that uh, beer had become more of a cultural phenomenon rather than a phenomenon of necessity. America um, took the English tradition of beer making mostly because uh, English waterways were so polluted and disgusting. It was the only way to ensure you had like decent access to a you know clean drinking liquid. Uh, but that, that problem didn't exist in America. The waterways were so plentiful. They flooded out so constantly. They always flooded out to the sea all the time. So whatever shit was piling, sometimes literal shit, whatever it was was piling up in these waterways would get flushed out every rainy season. And the water was mostly pot- potable all across the country for most of the time. So the necessity of having beer all around all the time, even light beer or ale with you at any given time, was really no longer a necessity, but it became a cultural necessity. So every, you know, it was it was very commonplace to have someone over for supper, or someone over for breakfast, or someone over for a meeting, or someone over to for uh, just uh, to spend time in the parlor, or you know what what have you. And you would offer them as a refreshment from having to walk or take their horse over to your place a nice, uh, you know, nice jug of cider. And it might not even be apple cider, it might be pear cider, it might be pumpkin cider, um, it might be any number of ciders, that berry cider that they would have on them. But this was, uh, the Americans kind of looked fondly on their history of uh, massive amounts of cider and beer consumption, uh, but saw it more as a fun cultural artifact rather than like this thing you needed to do to make sure that you weren't getting dysentery every time you took a sip of water. I believe it was I mean, traditional I think, I, when you walked in the door to scream, beer me. <laughs> I don't know if that was traditional. I, I do know it was traditional. It feels Probably. right. Something about that feels right. But you also have to remember that for huge swaths of this country um, in the early days, when it was still incredibly rural, um, children often had, you know, consumed beer and cider. Uh, Again, this is very light cider, uh, but children would consume it. Um, Wives would consume it. It, You know, this was this was seen as not just like a social lubricant. It was seen as um, almost the way that Italians view wine, I would say. It is just seen as something you do throughout the day. You partake in a little bit of this very light beer, very light cider as a refreshment. And that's, you know, that's a tasty alternative to just drinking water um, all day long. Um, And because of the alcohol and the fermentation process, you can just let it sit there. You don't have to go down to to the well or to the river or to the stream get the water, bring it back, and then drink it. You can, it's always there in the house or always there in the barn waiting for you. You know, you can just walk right in, have a swig, go back out, and keep working. Um, I believe it was also traditional. Well, there's so many know. different forms of alcohol. You could, you know, you could go your entire life without ever needing to drink water. It's apply that that, that's how communism enters into the bloodstream (laughs) i mean for for huge chunk of european history you're right there there were whole swaths of time where water consumption was somewhat scarce um you know you you had 
you know what there wasn't there wasn't any communism that's is that a coincidence that's probably i true. don't know i think that had there not been vodka factored into the Slavic experimentation with communism, it probably would have um, become some kind of gay circle jerk. But instead, well, because I they're, think they're... what happened in Russia is that in Russia you had the, the Jews, they started putting water into the vodka. <laughs> they started cutting it. So they're putting imp- impure water into the vodka. So I don't know if you guys are like familiar with how American food turned to shit in the 20th century. Um, I'm convinced that it turned to shit sometime in the 60s, but I'd like to hear your guys' take on it. Yeah, I mean, availability of... I ta- well, Taco Bell didn't come around until I don't think the 70s, but I could be wrong. Well, no, I think Taco relevant. Bell was in the 60s. But, but I mean, like in the '60s, you had the the explode. Well, first of all, the '60s is when high fructose corn syrup enters the American bloodstream. Interesting. Uh, I would in say order to prevent well, that's also when the evil uh, competition food from cheap. was created. What'd you say? The uh, the whole corn syrup meme. Uh, so there are a very few uh, American sugar producers, mostly around, uh, if I recall correctly, like Louisiana. It's not, there's very few parts of the U.S. that can actually support sugarcane. So in order to support those, uh, those yeah, they used to grow it in Hawaii. Yeah. But I don't think it's, don't it's, think it's all more. like weird. I mean, it's like sugarcane climate. So it's like tropical hellhole. Uh, if you happen to have a tropical hellhole, you can grow sugarcane. Otherwise, not so much. But for whatever reason, they're very um, politically influential. I mean, not for whatever reason, like because it was very profitable, they were able to turn that money into political power and they were able to lock their uh, alternate suppliers in places like Cuba and the rest of the Caribbean out of the market and get uh, tremendous domestic subsidies for themselves. So, I mean, if you look at other countries they mostly just use sugar they don't use corn syrup nearly to the same extent that the u.s does and that was mostly a uh, aspect of weird agricultural policies on our part not uh not necessarily just a you know a cost setting uh move but uh, like an actual matter of government policy to discourage through increasing the price uh, the use of actual uh sugar well, for a long time, the American sweeteners of choice were tree syrups, predominantly maple syrup, um, molasses, and honey. Uh, and then, you know, uh, variations on those or different recipes utilizing those. Um, American, I know that molasses in particular was probably the choice by the 19th century for Americans across the board, pretty much everyone. Molasses that's derived from the sorghum plant, right? I think it's so. Sorghum molasses. Yeah, it's pretty tasty stuff. Well, they're you know like the early. American- I, I thought it was from sugar production and it's leftover. Yeah, but, I mean, I know yeah. there's sugarcane-based molasses that's a byproduct, but I've definitely had sorghum molasses, and I know there's a shitload of sorghum grown in that time period. 
Well, one of the one of the things um, in the 19th century you started seeing with like the westward expansion was the beginning of like the boxes of cereal grains, and um, these things, a lot of good carbohydrates, a lot of good calories, good fiber, but they're bland. I mean, they are truly bland. So they're was not very particularly com- good for you. Yeah, I mean, they're not, yeah. But they'll they'll keep you going at the very least, and they're they're kind of like the you know it, your travel food, your worst case scenario food. Um, but what was often the case is that in these western expansions, there would be whole wagons devoted to carrying molasses, like molasses jam jars of jam jars of honey were so crucial because. There was no other sweetener alternative, predominantly because sugar was still difficult to get a hold of sometimes, especially as you were going westward. Um, certainly none of like things like cinnamon and allspice, saffron, saffron in particular was like just not a thing for the United States for a long time. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the elements you could use to sweeten or to make food a little bit more lively in that sense. Uh, were just not available to you, so you would always have jars full of, you know, uh, fruit extract or jam, uh, or you would have jars full of honey or jars full of, uh, of molasses, because that was basically the only way you were going to be able to sweeten any kind of food. And it's not just a uh, kind of, uh, you know, aesthetic preference for sweetness, although it certainly doesn't hurt. When you're talking about a world without refrigeration, if you can get a large amount of transportable calories in a very compact format, that's a very valuable thing. Like when you're looking at kind of a a quasi-pioneer diet, things like uh, just an enormous amount of butter and jelly on a biscuit, both of which preserve fairly well depending on your uh, your precise climate. But if you're canning it, uh, it uh, works fairly well. This is this is something that allows you to carry food uh, to places and stay alive, so that you can actually get these long distances without the logistical support network that you had in the east. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really until the turn of the 20th century or, you know, towards the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century that we started seeing refrigerated supply chains. And those those were very rudimentary. And it wasn't really until the 1920s when there was a refrigerator in most American homes, or at least refrigerators became uh, more available on a mass market. Um, At that point, Dietary preferences changed a little bit. People actually started to become a bit healthier, a bit bigger. There was like a a huge growth spurt because people were keeping dairy on them all the time. So kids were always having a fresh supply of milk, even if they were in the city or, you know, regardless of where they were, they could keep milk for a longer amount of time. They could have uh, meats, eggs, all kinds of things kept in the refrigerator. Um, Honestly, like, the, the average American, if, if there wasn't all this weird immigration from, like, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and southern Italy at the turn of the 20th century and all these guys showing up who were, like, five foot two, um, the average American height, I think at the time, if you factor that out, would have been, for men, would have been around 5'11". 
these were, you know, extremely tall people on average. I recently did a, uh, a con feat for the first time. You guys do this ever? Like a duck con feat? Yeah, well, I actually used pheasant. I had these pheasants sitting in my freezer since November, and pheasant isn't one of my favorite birds. They're fun to shoot, but uh, they're, I, they're not the tastiest bird. They're okay. So I was looking for other ways to do it, and yeah, confit, that's what, you used to be using sugar, you could use sugar, or you could use oil, or you could use both, in which case I use both, but it's, you know, a slow emulsion cooking that aids in preservation, and as far as it goes, it actually turned out pretty well. You know, in the, in the 19th century, um, one of the things you start to see a lot of, too, is uh, the precise u- utilization of measurements. Because at this point, the population in the United States is actually a fairly well-educated population. Most, you know, It's like an embarrassment to let your kid leave the family farm or family home not being able to read, write, do arithmetic, take measurements, stuff like that. Um, so most people at this point are comfortable with more accurate measurements instead of just saying like a dash or a pinch or a handful or, or a, you know, whatever, like all these kind of jargons that are left over from, um, the humdrum of English cookery. Now we have a bit more precise measurements. So people like, uh, Eliza Leslie, um, had started writing all these baking and pastry books and then uh, wrote this general cookbook called Directions for Cookery in its various branches. And again, this was intended to be appealing across socioeconomic classes and to be appealing across regions of the country because by 1837, the country is now expanded very far to the West. We have homesteads as as far West as uh, the Great Plains. We have states in the you know, modern Midwest now, we're expanding in the South, and it's becoming clear that uh, the country's growing very rapidly and people are becoming a little bit different. But there were still many attempts in the 19th century to maintain kind of a common cuisine culture, or at least a, a common place uh, approach to utilizing, again, the resources that were most plentiful inside the United States for cooking and keeping in line with kind of the old English cooking traditions. Um, so there was a great deal of, uh, of um, uh, egg batter, j- bread batter. There was a great deal of sweet meat. There was a great deal of uh, potato utilization, of um, turkey utilization, cranberry utilization, things like that. Um, maize utilization, all this corn utilization, all this stuff was very commonplace and was sort of unique to the United States at that stage. Um, As the country moved inland more, uh, there was less and less uh, of an appetite for as much fish and seafood. Um, And there was more and more of a general appetite for beef, for chicken, for turkey, for pheasant, for, um, for forced pigeon for all this kind of stuff for obviously for pork um, one of the things that never really took off in the united states was lamb lamb has never really been a popular very popular american meat um it's a restaurant really, uh, restaurant dish i really like making lamb but it, i will admit that it is tricky it's not like steak is relatively straightforward 
but like a lamb shoulder can go wrong in in a minute and a half. If you cook it the wrong way, just slightly, it's totally foobar. The meat is immediately ruined. It's not useful. You have to like spend years getting good at cooking lamb. Um, but for whatever reason, it just never really took off as much in the American cuisine culture. There was much more of an emphasis on large birds and pork and beef as uh, as kind of the staple proteins. You know what else I is a staple protein? The decline. <laughs> Go ahead, Nick. Oh, oh well, I wanted to hear what a staple protein was. <laughs> What's the stable protein? You know, you know those little sausages. Yeah, and they come on top of the little pepperonis. Uh huh. And it comes on top of a uh, sort of a shredded cheese layer, and that comes on top of a oh, slice of cardboard, and that comes on top about, of another uh, slice of cardboard, pizza. and you stick it in your pizza, your pizza drawer in your oven, or uh, in your uh, your freezer rather, before it goes in the oven. Hmm. I wonder if. Oh, you're talking about tortinos. <laughs> you got your tatinos. You got your DiGiorno's, Your freschettas. Your tombstones. So your mamacosis. Okay, so so that stuff kind of becomes 1970s and 1980s American culture, right? That's like, like the well era into of, the 80s because so yeah. I I recommend um, there's a surprising number of regional pizza regional frozen pizza brands because of the logistics of the uh it's actually incredibly capital intensive because you need uh you need like you don't just put together the dough and the stuff and like just you know freeze it you have to have these blast freezers and you can't just take normal dough you have to have you know slight modifications of it in order to survive the freezing process uh, in such a way that when you actually bake it again, it's actually good. So it's like, if you can go to one of these facilities, they're they're huge, and they're huge because they have uh, they have like a built-in regional market attached to them, where uh, the logistics of transport, like you're not going to send a whole frozen uh, food truck like over the Rocky Mountains to deliver a product where, you know, it sells for like $4, uh, you know, six, six to eight for your premium pies. But, you know, most people aren't buying the premium pies so much. So it benefits from, uh, from local production and, uh, you know, you can go and ask, Hey, can I see how the magic happens? Well, speaking of which, um, one of the most, entertaining places i've ever seen food made was the chocolate factory and no joke this is not just a willy wonka story you can do this uh, at select uh, places uh, hershey's used to do this i don't know if they still do but it's it's a lot of fun and it's it's almost overpowering uh olfactory wise because it's you, you have to imagine like these people get sick of the smell but every everything smells like chocolate any industrial food facility definitely go because it's it's crazy to see things like quality inspection are really non-trivial and then like just the the amount of process engineering that goes into these things like it, it's the amount, the amount of 
mechanical engineering that goes into like I, I took a tour of a regional Krispy Kreme uh, production facility when I was a teenager, and even then, I think I was just in awe at the amount of metal <laughs> the size of this lad. Yeah, to make donuts. It it was it was insane to me. Even yeah, a lot of a lot of stainless steel, right? Yeah, yes, and it, the whole place was like a hexachromatic jungle with donuts and like a sweet aromatic smell in the air. That kind of like after twenty minutes started to like almost tickle your eyes and your nostrils. Um, I assume you get used to it. I don't know, but. That's the yeast uh, taking root and uh, colonizing your respiratory system there. Awesome. So I had a, I definitely had a yeast infection in my in my uh, my nose then. Yeah, that would explain a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean what Hank is saying. I, I wonder is saying if is awesome. measurement talk though. What was that? The, the introduction of weights and measurements. Well, Hans was talking about when. You had standardization, and you had weights and measures being introduced into cookery. This is the exact reason that I don't like baking, is because I don't believe in using measurements. If your measurements, you're doing. Well, the the problem. I mean, just think about this. Like, you have to be able to improvise when you're cooking, and once you start trying to follow something to the letter. It all becomes, you know, confusing. You, maybe you had to substitute out something else. Maybe you didn't have the exact right volume of the protein or what have you. That's why the box says to, 21 you know, to 23 10. minutes because some people like it a little bit looser. Some people like it a little bit crispier. There's that variation in there. Well, it shouldn't really... be 21 minutes if, if you let the pizza properly thaw, though, as you should. Then it's oh. going to be probably a minute or two shorter. Than I I don't know if that's a good idea. the uh, The box says so, from, from ice to fire, fire to ice. So first of all, um, generally, I would say that the the introduction, like the introduction of, of weights and measurements um, in cooking, you can debate what is a weight and what is a measurement, right? We know, for example, again, the Romans had. A, um, some amount of, of weights and measurements. I mean, some of it was sort of uh, colloquialisms. Some of it was jargon. Um, but they had, they, they, you they had to a, make sure you're not getting screwed. You need to make right, sure they, they that had like, this shipload of olive oil is worth this much. Yeah, they, they had a general understanding, uh, especially in the art of cooking, about how much of one ingredient another ingredient to put in. Especially when you look at the kinds of dishes that Romans enjoyed – they were complex dishes. These were complex, big pots or big um, plates of food. And if you had too much of one ingredient, you could ruin the food. Now, you're right, Nick. Like, being a good cook is is mostly, for most things, maybe if you remove baking, uh, is mostly about spot checking. Like, typically, I don't follow, like, the the time something or, like, the time a recipe I'll read online tells me to wait. I don't really go, you know, I'm, I'm more confident in my ability to spot check, um, you know, how a piece of meat is doing or use a thermometer or just kind of, 
you know, you know, say, okay, it's been about 15 minutes or just use my experience having done the recipe or recipes like before, like people who just sit there and obsess over every detail and, and check the recipe 35 times compulsively while they're making it. I mean, if, unless it's something very complex, I would say you're not a great cook. You, you need to be a little bit more confident, a little bit more flexible. But when it comes to baking, I will say that the, the, the trouble with the trouble with the trouble with baking and especially with more complex baking like pastries is that and having having done this I can tell you it is very very easy to overdo it even just slightly on one of the ingredients and completely ruin whatever it is you're trying to make it's totally possible like the the utilization of weights and measurements for baking in particular came about because people desperately wanted proven ways of consistently making baked goods, especially bread. I mean, a lot of this just boils down to... Yeah, that's why I don't bake. I mean, a lot of this just boils down to consistently making bread and meat pies effectively, right? Uh, that, that is, that is generally why people wanted to get these exact weights and measurements because, you know, it's time intensive to get bread going, to get the starter going, to grow your bread, to bake it, to watch it, to spend all that time with it. You know, it's, it's a good, it's a use of your good flour, or if you're making a chicken pot pie or making some kind of meat pie or anything like that, um, it's a, it's a use, it's a big time and, and utilization of resources of planning to do it and if you fuck it up um then you wasted all that time and energy and, and it could have just been because you put slightly too much flour or you put too much milk or you used too much olive oil you used too much vinegar too much baking powder whatever um so i i the only time that i will actually yeah, like baking you taste things the same way as you're cooking as as you're baking as you are when you're cooking you have to let things do their you have to let it bake. Yeah, yeah I mean, can't I, just I don't open it up and take a chunk out of it. That's true. That's true. Like, and that's you know, like there there are some old tricks with baking, right? Like you can stick a toothpick right in the middle, and if it comes out mostly clean or entirely clean, then you're probably good, right? That's an old trick. Um, with things like Yorkshire batter or any kind of eggy batter. Um, typically you just want to look for color. You don't want to open your oven because that'll deflate and you'll ruin whatever it is you're trying to make. But, um, you just want to, you know, look through your, you either want to try and time it right. Um, or you just want to, if you have the ability to look through your oven without opening it and look for the color, if you see golden brown, um, starting to really crest and you're seeing what looks like hardening almost on the outside, then it's time to pull, you know, it's, that's the perfect moment to pull it out because it's, it's hit its peak. Um, there's a lot of those little tricks, but again, when it comes, especially when you're talking about 19th century America, when people are having big families, people are baking for sometimes like a, a side living where they're trying to figure out ways to utilize excess crops. Um, they want to make sure that they have a reliable way of making bread or pastries or whatever so that they don't waste valuable crops. I mean, in this day and age, we kind of look at it like, yeah, whatever, fuck it, just try it. And no big deal. You waste your resources, go to the store, get some more, and start over. 
Um, but for a lot of these people at the time, you know, resources are far more scarce. It could be until next harvest that you're going to have time to utilize those resources again. So you might as well make sure you have reliable methods for exacting value from those resources. I mean, baking is like, it takes some of the fun out of cooking. I don't generally like to bake too much. Um, but when I do, that's one of the few times when I actually will sit there and follow a recipe, you know, play by play without a lot of improvisation. I've never voluntarily baked. That's why, that's why you got to have a woman. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Something well, about the brain. It, it, it's like sizzling, well, like that, a sizzling beast on top of a stove actually, or a grill. To that. That's, you know, that's a whole nother thing. There, there's this mythology, I think, because maybe people grew up with their mother cooking and maybe she was okay at it. But people seem to think that women are good at cooking. This is, of course, false. Women are terrible cooks. All of the best <laughs> cooks in the world are men and they always have been and always will be. However, well, all women all the best can chefs, bake like all the best chefs are women, men. Yeah, there's only one like no woman has above 10 Michelin stars. The, there's a there is a woman who has I forget her name. Uh, she has it's like a, her last name's like Pick or something. She has a two-part name, of course, because every top-tier woman chef has at least a two-part name. Uh, but that being said, women are okay at following directions. So they can be okay at baking. And if you have a woman, you should make sure that she is uh, good at baking. But very few of the listeners to this show have uh, women who will bake for them. So The idea that women can cook is the foundational myth of the 20th century. <laughs> I mean, there was, there was a lot of great stuff. If you remember in, uh, in Century of the Self, where uh, Edward Bernays was hired. Women, women to smoke, right? Well, he, he he was hired by all of these companies in the 30s and 40s, even into the 50s, into like packaging flour and recipes and cornmeal and stuff like that. And, um, you know, basically the whole premise was how do we get women to be um, addicted to this sort of repetitive thing um, because we could – I think one of the things they found in that in a lot of these prepackaged meals or these prepackaged packets or whatever you would get that you bake, you didn't need to do this. But they'd always say, make sure you add an egg and some milk. And the the the, the conception from Bernays was that by giving women that little bit of repetition or a lot of repetition, but that little bit of their own input, that's that's also repetitive, but it is their own input the eggs and the milk that you're actually like getting them addicted to wanting to participate and going out and buying this thing, bringing it home, adding their own little input to it and baking it and then feeling accomplished. Well, if, if, if I can make a, not that great of a leap for, I think for listeners of this show, but maybe for a normal person, I think the same thing happens in modern democracies is that giving people, Oh, just vote. Then you'll have a say. I think that gives right. them the, about the same input to the actual output of the product of the country. And in the case of baking, adding an egg does to the Betty Betty Crocker cake mix. 
I like yeah. to take the uh, the blue cheese crumbles. You know, I think that you get from the deli section. You take the frozen but, pizza and you add those on top before you put it in the oven, and it gives it kind of a nice little tang that's enjoyable. I don't remember the last time I even consumed <laughs> frozen pizza. It must have been five years ago. I really don't well, go for sometimes frozen buy frozen pizza. The main frozen item that I will stock, though, is of course Stouffer's lasagna, which is a you know that is hearty, an absolute essential to have in your freezer at all times. It takes yeah, so it long though. Away. It takes but like an it, hour and a half to cook a frozen lasagna. Yeah, it just shows you that it's patrician frozen food. I was going to say, though, also when it comes to women in cooking and and being top-tier chefs in the world, you know, it's like, have you ever been inside of a kitchen? I mean, people are throwing fucking knives at each other, and you're screaming at people all the time. Women, it's a very difficult environment for women women to rise up in, uh, and as it should be. Well, I I wanted to speculate as to the the start of the decline if we want to call it that of american cooking and i guess one question i have is was there ever a peak but uh there i would say is there i would say that the peak of american cooking well there are a few peaks the peak of the traditional kind of hearty humble but very good for you good tasting and um, resource intensive uh, was maybe towards the end of the 1910s, early 1920s. I kind of want to agree with you, and that's sort of what I have in my mind. I'm just wondering if it's a myth. I mean, I wasn't alive back then, and I couldn't go back in time and taste it. That's also literally the time period when uh, Upton Sinclair was writing The Jungle. That was like the original attempts at processed uh, processed and mass-produced foods that went disastrously yeah and i i'm kind of thinking that too it's like did the overprocessization of i mean you talk about disasters i think the reason um there's a lot of health and safety standards is there was a shipment of i forget what the the food was it was something that was canned and there was a huge outbreak of botulism and now you have to i mean hopefully you you have to do better uh and i think in the case of you know american processed food standards it's still better than china's at least but the question is was america's homemade cooking better for you and you could define that however you want was it tastier was it uh healthier there's a million ways right but uh, i i do kind of wonder if the processing of all the foods like with the mres from world war ii and the spam and all this stuff and the in the in the plastic uh, that sort of exploded after the war to me, that seems to be kind of when things got a little bit too commercial and away from uh, mom, even though she may not be a Michelin 10 star. She's Adam, probably better, better than spam. Well, you can you can actually see the decline of American cooking during the Depression period when I mean, a lot of the food they were making during the Depression was was, was meatloaf actually from them. I don't think so, but I, mean, the, I thought the, 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 the depression the legend through. about it was that we don't have anything of proper quantity, so we'll just mix it all together and call it meatloaf. I thought that's what it was. 
I'm Meatloaf pretty sure there's like old English analogs to like you go yeah. back far enough. There's there's very few wholly novel uh, foods. Everything that can be invented has mostly been invented. Yeah, I would say the most novel like Anglo-American food invention in the 20th century was maybe like uh, a beef Wellington or something like that. Like. And that's the height of 1950s. The jalapeno popper. Oh, fuck you! But I <laughs> they're think delicious. That, no, they're terrible. But uh, in, in the, no, in if the, you make them from scratch, they're they, good. They are delicious. Uh, yeah, okay, if you if you've never had like so, if you take like the the crappy frozen like app, because in a fast paced modern fast food environment, you don't have enough time for the atizer. But if you take that and you actually, like, you're like, huh, I'd like to have something like this, but that wasn't frozen and didn't suck. And it turns out if you do that, they're delicious. Like, you take a, like, a, a pickled jalapeno, oh, like a decent pickled ones, right? jalapeno. Yeah. You, uh, you uh, inject it with the cream cheese oh, and you uh, bread I, it I was and fry talking it. about stuff. Yeah, I've never done that. I've done stuffed. I've, I, in fact, just the other couple weeks ago, I did some stuffed jalapenos. Well, there was, um, I, I mean, I want to say that American cooking took an, an incredible nosedive in the Depression. Like, if you look at the kinds of meals that the average person was eating, they're just disgusting. It, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is gross. Medieval English peasants ate better, I can guarantee you. Um, it was an explosion of preserved canned foods. There was a there was a book that was immensely popular. Irma Rombauer's uh, Joy of Cooking. And the whole fucking cookbook is basically about uh, utilization of canned and preserved goods constantly and making these like chicken scratch recipes that are, are terrible for you look terrible like you can look you can just look at pictures of the average american during the depression and they just look haggard and strung out and i'm like yeah because they're going home and they're eating some really disgusting can of lima beans with like a chunk of spam uh, for dinner every night <laughs> and getting two hours of sleep. Right. And, I mean, we, we talk yeah. too about, uh, you know, logistical disruption, in our, our present circumstances, but given the amount of farms that were going under and then the ones that were remaining, like, I mean, the federal government was telling you, no, like you're not allowed to, grow crops you're not allowed to have livestock because we need to magically drive up the price which has the effect of you know the circumstances that we see today where things end up being channeled uh into uh logistical channels where there's actually a guaranteed market behind it where there's guaranteed purchasing power uh, where there's a guaranteed distribution network, and that ends up being your uh, canned food producers, your processed food producers. Yeah, and then 
in the 40s, the food really didn't improve much. I would say that 1950s America, though, was very, was very interesting. It was interesting because America at this point establishes the global trade complex. And we talked about this in our Banana Empire episode. Um, suddenly, Americans, even middle class, lower class Americans, have access to all of the fruit and vegetables and meats and grains and cereals and everything of the world at their fingertips. And uh, the recipes being derived were like very decadent, very overdone, very tasty. If you've never had beef Wellington, oh my God, you got to have beef Wellington with like a 1950s style American banana split sundae. That is the height of civilizational achievement right there. That was when America reigned supreme over the world, and that was kind of the stuff we were coming up with. Huge roast beefs with these elaborate desserts right afterwards, pineapple upside-down cakes with sweet condensed milk and all this kind of stuff. Um, Basically, especially after, you know, 15 years after the Depression is over, and then after World War II is over, people just wanted to live it up. People wanted to enjoy their victory. So they, you know, concocted a very, very um, interesting set of recipes that are, you know, they're like the house, the, uh, the 1950s housewife style recipes that we, you know, look fondly on. Um, or I would say somewhat in line with the old American traditions of cooking, but definitely much more decadent and much more uh, magnanimous and victory style cooking. I'm I'm not sure if that's uh that accords with the general consensus. When you talk about 1950s cuisine, uh the uh, the popular conception of that is a lot of canned foods, a lot of jello, a lot of canned foods that somehow are injected into jello uh for some reason. Uh it made sense at the time. But I mean, uh, the kind of empirical reality of that, I'm sure, doesn't show up. And there's kind of a a cultural selection effect where you remember uh, the bizarre and the bizarre becomes uh, the meme for the entire thing. There's like a class effect where uh, people were, you know, able to entertain. Like you were able to have people over and cook something interesting for literally the first time in 20 years. Yeah. Not, not since like, you know, back, hey, remember that party we had in 1927? Yeah, we're, we're not going to do that again until 1951. Like that's more like 1955. Yeah, that's, that's a long yeah. ass, that's a long ass time. And so you can see like, Hey, there's this weird stuff. Turns out you can just put uh, put a bunch of fruit, which somehow now is attainable inside of this Jello, and tastes okay. And it's kind of weird. Haven't seen this before. It'll be the talk of the town. Yeah, in the 1950s, and then, and honestly, 1960s, most of the 1960s as well. Across the country was the the beginning or the, the dawn of the middle and working class dinner party. Like a working class guy who worked in a machine shop could afford a house, 
and he could afford a couple good suits, and he had a decently good-looking wife, right? And they had a social life. And, every, you know, once a month, they could afford to throw a dinner party, not for 100 people, but for 10 other you know, ten other people. And the wife would be able to, you know, very easily cook up a nice big roast beef or a nice large roast turkey or something like that and have a nice elaborate dessert and everyone would be able to have coffee and cream and sugar afterwards. You know, everyone enjoyed um, uh, spirits and, and cigarettes throughout the night. It was, you know, kind of like the ultimate uh, dining experience in your own home with all your friends. That was what the 1950s was in, in 60s as well was was like for a lot of people. The 70s is when I, I think that's when the microwave becomes a thing and the toaster ovens become a thing. And, you know, now you're really seeing food just decline. You know, the, the TV dinners explode in popularity. You start seeing the boxed dinners, the boxed mac and cheese. Well, you also had, like, women had always been working outside the house in the lower classes, but that's the point at which it switched to an aspirational ideal. So it's, again, this, this cultural memory selection effect where suddenly people who became, you know, the, the, Hard ass lady bosses of via the eighties got their uh, their foot in the door in the seventies, uh, making sure that their kids had. Uh, which you know at the time they still bothered to have kids, uh, making sure their kids had TV dinners and uh, you know maybe a nice uh, bowl of cereal uh, as their uh, you know their uh, conclusion to the day there. Yeah, the- yeah. And that's that's also like you know the the cultural uh, the cultural backlash against that. Um, like you'll notice, nobody actually uh, TV dinner is not a expression anymore. Like it's not a contemporary uh, expression um, because the the idea is that like well back in the day it's like microwave your thing and put it on the tray and like we all watch television and then we go to sleep which you know even uh even as degenerated as our current society is realize that that's like a particularly kind of horrific uh, and quasi-institutionalized way to live but i mean that's the the time period that that association is meant to draw upon i mean like it's it's questionable now like like the television as a uh a focal point for social interaction was at least a thing as opposed to everybody on the iPad. Well, now I would say that TV dinners have been replaced by Uber Eats and Grubhub. I mean, it's the same basic principle, right? You get your Uber Eats delivered to your door and then you sit down and watch Netflix for three hours. I mean, like even before lockdown, that that was a thing. That's been a thing for 10 years. Are okay, people having it, more takeout now or less, do you think? Like, obviously, so nobody's gonna, going to restaurants, you, but... It's got to be more. I'm going to give you an, a piece of anecdotal evidence that I think that there's an explosion in it. Um, the, the, the complex, or the area I'm in, there's a big set of dumpsters. And anytime, day or night, I walk out there to take out my trash... 
there is an overflow, constant daily overflow of takeout bags, bags from Uber Eats, bags from Grubhub, pizza boxes. And it's not like Domino's. It's all the different pizzerias around here people are getting ordered from, like all the little pizza shops and all the little um, dim sum shops and all the little sandwich shops. And, you know, like literally every single small business that makes food is now on some kind of internet platform, Grubhub, Grubhub. Postmates, Uber Eats, whatever. Which, um, by the way, like those places absolutely rape those uh, those restaurants on delivery fees. Uh, if you have any opportunity to, like, never order a takeout like via one of these platforms. Just like call the place directly, and they make literally about three times as much, which keeps them open. Like these places are low margin to begin with, and now it's just apocalyptic. So, if you would like yeah. a livable neighborhood in your future, try to cut out uh, middlemen to the uh, the extent possible. Also, I mean, a lot of people have given this advice, but you know, maybe some people haven't heard it. If you're looking for decent quantities of things like flour or, you know, 10 pounds of potatoes or whatever, call up one of these restaurants that's just open for takeout and be like, hey, you guys sell hamburgers. Can I buy like 20 pounds of hamburger from you? And chances are they'll say yes, and you'll probably get a pretty good price and you won't have to deal the... uh, the hellhole that is your local uh, grocery store. Yeah. Also, I, I would recommend to everyone right now, if there's a farmer's market in your area or near your area, even if it's half hour away, go to it, please. Like keep the small farmers alive through this, whatever you have and they're, to do. Like they're dumping livestock right now. So yeah, my recommendation is uh, all the, those stacks of Totinos, go ahead and blaze through those and get in touch with your local farmer and see who's got like a half pig or a half cow yeah. uh, to sell because most of them actually are trying to uh, trying to offload as much as possible. And that's yeah. like, you know, it seems like a lot of meat. And it is a lot of meat. It'll feed you for a very long time. It'll be high quality because it's from one specific animal where, you know, these local guys usually take care of their animals. But you can fit it. uh, And you can, you know, between your fridge and your freezer and how much you're eating, like, you'll eat very well and you'll probably develop a... uh, It's never a bad idea to have a... uh, have a actual personal person that you you know that grows food or know a baker i mean i think a lot of people used there used to be a relationship in this country where everyone i would say going into late 19th century 20th century america in cities in small towns and rural areas and everything in between you knew the butcher you knew the baker you knew the spice shop, you knew the drugstore, you knew the grocer, 
you knew the produce guy, you knew people who maybe were into dairy and you would sometimes run a dairy co-op with them, or sometimes you just go buy it directly from them, or you had a relationship with the milkman. Like you, you knew these people, these people knew you, they got used to a certain amount of fluidity in you coming in certain amount of times a week to get something. They always made sure that was available for you. Like there was a real economic partnership there. You as buyer and them as seller. Um, it's shocking to me how little butchers, independent butchers are left. Butchers are basically gone in this country. Um, bakers still around for, to an extent, but most bakers, most bakeries have basically converted into like cafes because it's the only way they can stay in business. Um, uh, you know, small grocers that aren't chains, incredibly rare. And they often have boutique things or niche things, typically ethnic, like Eastern European or African or Latin American, uh, rarely just sort of normal people. Um, so if there's I, any if, fucking congressman listening to this yeah. and, uh, you know, not saying I might know, but it's not out of the question. Subsidize the shit out of local producers and retailers is actually a counter epidemic measure. You can't fit as many people into a 20 person max capacity store as you can into a 500 person max capacity store. So if you're planning on shutting down the entire regional economy to fight the plague, it's probably a better idea if you substitute that economic activity away from the giant closed-loop air circulation system that constitutes your local supermercado and into, you know, your corner store. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I will say that I live in a relatively wealthy metro area, so there are butchers and uh, dairy shops, olive oil shops, bakers, independent bakers. Yeah, I mean, they, this they, is, they cultivate the, the upscale market. But this is upscale. You walk in there, you want a pound of, of decent ground beef. Okay, that'll be $15. Excuse me? Like, is, is this... You don't is, understand. Is some, I knew Jerry. Yeah. He was a good cow. He was a healthy cow. <laughs> right. He could run at I mean, 15 miles an hour. Do you know how fast yeah. that is for a cow? Yeah. I mean, it, and unfortunately, this is not the reality for most of the country. I mean, they, they don't even have anything to begin with in, in this regard. There is no butcher. You go to your local Albertsons or your local Walmart, and there is a butcher's counter in there. That's the butcher now. And they utilize the same broken down, very temperamental, disease-ridden supply chain that Tyson's does. That's who your butcher is now. It's basically a front operation for the big meat packers. No longer is it like a small independent thing um, or a unique thing. They're, that just, you know, it's completely imploded. Um, I want to say in the 90s, 
from people I've talked to, my family, people who I know that are a bit older than I am, um, that's when they say they started noticing this trend of butchers going out of business, bakers going out of business, dairy shops going out of business, or being all this stuff would be consolidated. Um, you know, uh, specialty shops kind of going out of business, being replaced by like ethnic things that are basically importing from the former Soviet Union or importing from Cuba or you know, Africa or China. And doing every cost coming, tr- like, you know, shutting off the fridges at night. Yeah. Like sleeping in the back of the store, every bizarre and unhealthy cost cutting measure you don't want having uh, in a place that's supposed to serve you food that won't poison you. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, in the 90s, from people I've talked to, and you could probably find some data to, to elucidate this a bit more, seems to be when food supply in this country took a turn for the worse. That is also around the time, and if you guys think otherwise, correct me, but when the notion of, like, uh, we're going to go out once or twice a week for a different nationalities food we're going to get mexican food thursday you know taco tuesday or we're going to get chinese food thursday night we're going to get thai food this one night like the 90s seems to be when that explodes this notion of like once or twice a week you just go out and get some ethnic food and that's 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 the new replacement for the for the local butcher shop and the local baker is like the local Chinese joint or the local uh, Ecuadorian joint. Which actually, you know, when you say replacement, there was an actual substitution effect where the restaurant uh, logistical supply chains got extremely sophisticated. It's it's even in places that are not particularly uh, urban or fancy, you can find uh, restaurants that have like, oh yes, like farm to table, whatever the hell. And there are actual small-scale local restaurant distributors that focus on, like, you know, I I need quail eggs for my weird quail egg risotto thing. Like, where does one get quail eggs? It's like, well, maybe you know a guy, or maybe you know a guy who knows a guy, and I'm the guy in the middle... And that is a valuable logistic coordinating function. All of those guys are now uh, out of business, uh, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, you know, depending on how much inventory they had on hand, they might or may not be bankrupt. Uh, look for uh, look for warehouses to start burning down uh, suspiciously in the near future. But I mean, it's not like everything just got. And I know this is. This is kind of a uh, a weird turn of events for the uh, the official uh, podcast of podcast of massive black pills, but things didn't purely get worse and worse and worse and worse. You had shifts in logistical networks towards things that were less visible and less direct, but that still, you know, all of this the availability of excellent good high quality meat has massively increased since the 70s in a lot of areas 
That that I will agree with. That I will agree with. Like the nineteen seventies, it was abysmal. I mean, the nineteen seventies was like uh, America was <laughs> semi collapsing on some level. It w- it was an abysmal time in this country. I think a lot of people pretend it didn't happen. Uh, the food quality was abysmal. The culture was abysmal. Literally everything about the 1970s sucked. The only thing that was good about it was Richard Nixon, and unfortunately, he wasn't a big part of it. Like, the food was so bad that you had tens of thousands of people dying from foodborne illnesses that we as a country had believed we had solved decades, or if not 50, 60 years prior. Like, meat packers were going on strike and fucking up left and right. You had an explosion in bad milk. You had an explosion in bad eggs. You had all these goofy food pyramids and nutritional digests that were being put out that are terrible for you, like telling you that the reason why you're unhealthy is that because you eat too many eggs and, and, and glasses of milk a month. And not because you're like the food pyramid, folks. Yeah, not not like the, the the insane levels of smog in every city in America had nothing to do with your bad health. It was the eggs that was giving you health problems. Like this, this was probably the most disastrous period in American history, uh, for, especially for food and and, and well being in general. And uh, I I will agree with Hank that you can get high quality meat in vast quantities from a variety of sources and not just meat but like if like the idea of specialty olive oil like these logistical networks they cut both ways because you can also have you know anonymous crap oil that's quote-unquote bottled in italy Uh, you can have that be distributed to a vast population. That's those like, are, well, it, it those are actually, a lot of those are syndicated. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's turtles all the way down. But, I mean, conversely, like, imagine the logistics of, I would like to acquire a bottle of nice extra virgin Portuguese olive oil. That takes me less than five minutes right now. Uh, I mean, not to my door, but, you know, to ensure that it arrives at my door whenever uh, the Postal Service gets around to it. In 1970, that's that's like a multi-day odyssey. You probably have to literally track down a elderly Portuguese man. Probably by just, like, finding the Spanish names in the phone book and then finding the misspellings of those. Like, it's it's impossible and being a wealthier country now, like we are actually wealthier, you know, some ways poorer, things like social capital, but richer in some ways, like coordinating capacity. These things, they create small uh, small market segments, um, to use kind of the, the crass, like, economist speak. But they, they create constituencies. There there are people who are interested in these things that, like, you know, the, the idea of an olive oil store that, like, ah, yes, we have, like, the olive oil from every country and, like, every every region of Spain is represented in these little dispenser things. And yeah. would you like a shot, sir? It's our tasting hour. Uh, <laughs> 
Like that that would be yeah. just absolutely absurd at any point prior. Because the other thing is that people can actually become informed of these things. Like the uh, the the idea that there are um, bad farming practices that these particular regions have banned and these other regions allow and are prevalent in these other regions, that's something that was actually extremely difficult to convey before the invention of the internet. So, I mean, it, it's this, this grand social bifurcation that I think exhibits the modern uh, food ecosystem more than anything else, where because of the scale at which we're operating, it's incredibly easy to supply just mass dirty commodity calories to the bottom n percent of your population. And conversely, it's possible to make sure that your elites and anyone who has a even passing interest in this can eat better than they have been able to in any time literally in human history and you know have watermelon in the dead of winter and uh, all these other uh, wonderful things uh and you know i uh, i guess try to be on the better half of that equilibrium Blow the whistle, no fire man, he rang the bell. That engine blow the whistle, no fire man, he rang the bell. 
It's bad, you know. You know I'm coming. He scents his prey. She asked me why. I just went on and told her. She asked me why. I just went on and told her. Bad, you know.